Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Mentor86 shares how he broke in straight to the buy side right out of undergrad during the 2008 recession. We cover what he did to pivot when his hedge fund went under, why his new role was valuable, and how he prepared for his jump back into trading in the hedge fund industry many years later. Buckle up, it's an interesting ride. Great mentor eighty six. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Anyways, it'd be great if you could just start off with a quick uh, overview of your background. Sure. Um, so I have a bit of a non-traditional background, uh, as opposed to the vast majority of my peers who went uh, through the traditional route of a two-year investment banking program and a subsequent entry into the uh, buy side, whether it be private equity or hedge funds, um, I went to the buy side directly after graduating college. Um, certainly wasn't uh, the, uh, the creme de la creme candidate coming out of it being such a competitive school, um, but my passions lied in sort of markets, trading and investing, and I wanted to pursue a career directly in that. And so uh, it kind of led me to a uh, career path where I was uh, strictly on the buy side for the last 10 years, um, uh, jumping between funds that had fairly different strategies. But for the better part of the last five years, um, I've been at uh, which is a uh, global macro fund and a fixed income relative value fund as well. Um, and... Um, in that fund, I had the title of head of macro strategy um, before I left, and I was part of their uh, discretionary global macro effort. And um, I reported directly to the CIO. Um, I led uh, various weekly meetings, and I was very integral to uh, to their investment process. Great, that's awesome. Thank you for that quick summary. I guess. Maybe we just should start back during undergrad and kind of what led you, you know, what made you so interested in jumping straight to the buy side or what, what was the thought process going through? Was it like, oh, I, I know I'm not the right candidate for banking or is it more of this is just really my passion. I'm going to go straight to it. So um, the coursework that I had at school was not that of a undergraduate business program. I was in the undergraduate economics class and was taking a lot of uh, quantitative classes, computer science classes, obviously economics classes. Um, and the uh, deal making was never an interest of mine. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I thought to myself, why don't I just go ahead and do directly what I uh, want to do? Um, and my attitude towards life has always been, well, there's this established track, but you could always carve your own path. And so that's what I ended up doing for better, or for worse. Um, and um, that, that, that was generally my thinking. And then what were the actual jobs you were looking into? Or when did you make that decision of, okay, this is the way I'm going to go? And then was it, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, or was it really late? And then what were the jobs you were really targeting for that? So um, my college experience is a little bit different only because um, I had a three-year undergraduate experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say that by the end of the first year, I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in finance. Okay. Um, I had an internship uh, after my first year at, uh, which is a um, uh, an organization tasked with uh, clearing a settlement of transactions of all OTC transactions that take place across the street. Uh, and it was very, very tangential. I didn't get uh, any uh, direct hands-on investing experience uh, from that, uh, but I continued to take coursework. Um, in the in sort of what i wanted to do so i took as many finance and investment classes as i could uh, and ultimately on uh, in my third year which ended up being my final year i uh, interned at the university uh, endowment um, which gave me uh, exposure to what the, <clears throat> the buy side actually looks like um, even though most endowments are structured like fund to fund uh, just being in an environment where I'm thinking about manager selection and thinking about optimal portfolios, and portfolio risks and concentrations started to, to really sink in, um, given the coursework that I took. And this was some you know, real, uh, real world, uh, world experience. And so having that internship sort of came away um, after graduating with the conviction that this is something that I really wanted to do. Um, yeah. And um, I guess to answer your question directly, um, the decision to kind of pursue buy-side roles as opposed to going through banking probably was made in the beginning of my final year. Got it. And so then once you had that, you had made that decision, is there a certain role on the buy-side where did you know, hey, I just definitely want to be at a hedge fund or I want to be in a certain research role or I want to be more of a, yeah. you know, a, a quant role or what, what was that decision like? And I would love to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, th there wasn't, at the time, there wasn't as much sort of variety at the entry level mm -hmm. um, on the buy side. It all look, looked and felt fairly similar, which is um, you come in as a generalist and we'll see where we can place you. Um, the recruiting environment is also a little tricky given the fact that I graduated into the summer of 2008. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the, the, the variety was fairly limited at the time. And so I made best with the opportunity set that I was presented with. Um, and so uh, sort of the, the cookie crumbled as it did. Um, and I, um, I ended up uh, working at a farm in Greenwich, Connecticut that had um, uh, a small amount of assets under management, but uh, perhaps gave me um, a lot more responsibility than the average entry level role. I think the fact that you got any job in 2008 is pretty remarkable. <laughs> um, it was a, obviously a very scary time. I, I think, um, so I, I'd be curious in that first role, 
you know, it sounds like you you learned a lot, but was there anything in undergrad in terms of technical courses you took or certain things looking back that you felt like, wow, that was really useful or was the majority of it just learning on the job? You know, I did learn a lot on the job. Um, um, I think that, you know, the one thing I say to people when they ask me for advice and they're still in college, they want to pursue a field in, uh, in investing or trading or anything to do with liquid markets. I say take as many uh, computer programming classes as possible. Take as many classes as expose you to statistical software. Uh, take as many classes as possible where you're forced to present in front of large audiences. Because the way that the world is going, and I sort of felt this very early on, is uh, you need to be able to distinguish yourself in how you um, analyze situations, analyze data sets. But more importantly, um, you need to be able to communicate your conclusions in a very succinct way. So I think that to be um, an all-around player, uh, the triple-double, if you will, in, uh, in, in finance, is, uh, if you're able to, to be a quant, but at the same time be a great communicator. And I think that the, the, the emotional IQ and the math IQ together is a, is a very powerful combination. Absolutely. Um, couldn't agree more. Do you feel like at Corn? Do you feel like at Corner you you did enough of that, or did you kind of wish you had, you could you did even more of it in terms of the the computational and computer so, science type stuff? Um, I, yes, I definitely should have done a lot more of computer science classes. I, I did as much as I could on the investment side, given the fact that I was in College of Arts and Sciences and I was constrained around all the liberal arts requirements that I uh, needed to take before I graduated. Right. Um, and so I think it's very important to take those. And, and even I think that a lot of kids at school, and I think this included myself, I took the, the, the two most um, basic computer science classes. But, but ultimately, a lot of kids shied away from computer science at schools because those classes tend to be very competitive. They tend to be very time consuming. Uh, and they tend to deflate your GPA. Um, and, and I guess what I'll say to, to kids now when they ask is like, if you can take a computer science class at a community college while still going to a university or, or take an online course through Coursera, there's so many great online classes mm -hmm. just to get that exposure before you graduate. I think, I think that's a great way of doing it. Um, so I think, I think it's something to keep in, to keep in mind because I know it's a fairly tricky balancing act between trying to maximize your GPA while trying to really come out and be, and be that triple threat. For sure. And can we talk a little bit about the recruiting in 2008 and when you came out? Kind of, Was this the only option you had or did you have several offers? How did you actually go about prepping for interviews for this type of role? Yeah. So, um, so given the fact that I was sort of recruiting for full-time roles in the fall of 2007 with only two full years of undergraduate experience that was sort of dwarfed by folks that uh, might have had, you know, one more internship than I did. Um, so once that season came and went, um, I was sort of limited to the remaining um, opportunities that were available and they sort of quickly shrunk as, as I approached, um, you know, graduation in mm -hmm. the, the late spring of 2008 and uh, ultimately just um, scouring the web um, and just looking to see, uh, just checking 
uh, various job sites and, and very frequent basis just allowed me to to spot opportunities early and maybe quicker and uh, and finally land a few interviews. And I think that I secured I secured a job I think literally a week before graduation. So it was a wow. it was a fairly close call. <laughs> yeah, right under the gun. Did you um, in terms of interview prep? Was there anything specifically you did to kind of I mean, you, you were already passionate about the markets, but was there something in terms of, did you have like a long pitch ready and a short pitch ready or anything like that? Um, yeah, I think that I had a pitch about myself in terms of, um, you know, what value I could bring uh, over and above a typical candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly did a lot of prep. Um, I read uh, uh, the Herd in the Street book by, by, by Crack, which is a fairly well-known guide to, um, to Wall Street interview questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think uh, that prepped me fairly well. And, um, you know, I was just trying to be as comfortable and as myself as I could have been. Um, and it worked out. Um, did you have an actual inve- investment? Said, did you have to present an actual investment thesis for the, for the position or was it more just? Yeah, they had me pitch something, you know, fairly quickly just to, to gauge, you know, my communication skills. Right. Uh, but it was nothing take home or nothing formal. Got it. Okay. That's fair. So, you know, you're there for a few years. What do you think you learned the most when you were at that, at that role or what, what kind of did you develop the most in terms of skill set? Um, I think the skill set that I developed the most is, um, just, I guess, coming directly from, uh, from school where you learn the most on the job, the first couple of years is that, the real world is is not the theoretical world that you learned, and and there's there's quite a value that you can add being uh, being able to pick up on on other people's bullshit. Um, <laughs> so whenever you're evaluating deals from the sell side, or uh, whenever you're you know you're thinking about or looking at market commentary, I think it's very important to sift through the noise to find the signal, um, and so. Investing as a landscape is full of of bad opportunities, and, and and one of the ways in which I like to think about adding value or finding alpha is, well, don't try to hit home runs, but try to avoid striking out, mm-hmm. and that's sort that that's how I think about it. And it's sort of if you avoid mistakes, the alpha will take care of itself. Um, and I think on the job, I, I sort of developed this knack and. It comes from my natural skepticism from being uh, raised in Brooklyn, but um, just just being able to stop bull- spot bullshit is a very important skill. You tell me there's a lot of bullshitters in Brooklyn? <laughs> yeah, no shortage of that. <laughs> well, that sounds like uh, you got some uh, kind of street smarts from a young age. But in terms of in terms of the actual, so it sounds like you you were able to kind of hit a lot of singles, doubles at this at this initial firm, did you specifically, um, were you, were you just a generalist? Was it, um, more like event driven? Was it, was there any specific strategy that the, that the firm used? And if you're not comfortable sharing, that's fine. Um, I was a generalist. Um, the, the firm was active in a, um, in some event driven, uh, opportunities, but, um, but they were allocating assets to uh, a niche market at the time. Uh, which was uh, centered around uh, the, the carbon credit market uh, mm-hmm. in Europe. And um, we were looking at a lot of private uh, project finance uh, transactions. And so this is sort of a new market 
um, that I was sort of getting my uh, my hands dirty with, and um, it was sort of it was fairly interesting, and um, it's not a market that's particularly liquid or or, or developed now, uh, but it was it was certainly interesting to be um, part of a new market back then. Interesting. There was just it was much more liquid back then, is what you're saying, and so there were big opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah there there was opportunities. There's a there's a lot of deals to look at. Um, uh, cool. That market isn't sort of what it was before, but there was an interesting interesting time to be in that market at the height. Cool. So you're there for a few years, and you kind of go. What's kind of what's the impetus to actually start looking for another role, and what what kind of and why did you end up where you ended up next? Um, so the uh, ultimately the, uh, the 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 fund that I started with um, uh, sort of ran out of assets and um, it got its final redemption uh, by the end of 2010, and um, they sort of uh, uh, they they had a lot of um, firings that they they went through and didn't have really the budget to support uh, a full fledged investment staff. Mm-hmm. And so I was um, forced to, to pivot, and um, and that was uh, was the beginning of 2011. And I was able to do some consulting work actually for um, for uh, an acquaintance who um, was starting up a fund. Uh, but but ultimately, I landed um, at a full time place a couple months down the line um, at a place called, um, and I was. Um, uh, effectively uh, hired to be the uh, investor research person um, to to promote uh, the ETF product. Um, so it was quite a pivot in strategy-wise in, in terms of my day-to-day from what I did um, uh, at the first job. Um, but mm-hmm. I sort of, uh, at the second place, I honed my, um, my communication skills from a... Um, uh, from a written perspective, with published notes that went out to quite a large distribution list of people, uh, but also through industry events where I got to present in front of uh, fairly large audiences, and um, and I think that you know some of those skills that I flagged as being very important when you're in college, I really put that into um, into fairly good use um, at, at WGC. Great, and then in terms of kind of your role there, did it evolve? Did you just continue kind of selling different products that the company would come up with and you kind of acted as, do they call that, what, what's the role title typically for that? Is it sales something or is it? Um, you still... It was um, it was a research associate, okay. I guess it was as a title and eventually grew into a VP role, but um, it was it was housed within investor research. Um, I happened to have a, a, great, uh, a great boss who came out of JP Morgan and um, I think it was a great mentor to me. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was primarily an investor research role, but uh, there, was a, there was a big marketing aspect to it as well. And did you, um, did you enjoy that or did you kind of still crave to get back to the trading side of things? So, yeah. So um, the, despite it being a very good learning experience, I, I said to myself, you know, I kind of want to go back and be uh, a direct investor, right? Rather than, Sort of publishing research on investment products for other people to buy and sort of be on the, the, the sell side of things. Um, I thought that my talents laid in uh, investing and that's where my passion was and that's where my energy was focused on. And at the time I was um, completing my CFA and, and so all this energy was going towards learning markets 
uh, and I felt that that's where the side that I wanted to uh, ultimately be in. And while this uh, this research salesy type of seat was was a great uh, two years, um, I wanted to really test out my skills in, um, in, in liquid trading. And uh, that's how I ultimately ended up at where I was there for, for almost five years. And in terms of just your your transition over to that, you know, to, to become a trader again, did you feel like that was a hard sell given that you had kind of left that? Or did you feel like you were able to communicate um, that well? Yeah, I mean I think I think I had I had some some explaining to do and I think that people were um, at least the the my interviews were sympathetic to the the job market overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but more importantly I was able to impress them on the interview with how much I knew about uh, the market that they traded despite not being in it. And, um, and it just uh, goes to show that uh, just being prepared for interviews is very important. Um, how did you, able, how, how uh, did you prepare for, I mean, was this, did you go in to this specific, the one you ended up with the job, did you actually go in knowing that you were going to be in a macro type environment? So you, you knew to kind of study up on kind of more exactly. broad so macro trends. study up on it. I, yeah. I prepared a, uh, a trade idea and I, you know, had a lot of, uh, bullet points and details that I had to support uh, the idea, and, and throughout the research of, of that investment opportunity, I just you know learned up all the terminology that was relevant to the time, and and um, and so just the interview prep alone, I think, took me um, almost a week. Um, mm-hmm. I would say in terms of man hours, just to just to feel that I'm fully prepared to take on uh, an interview. In a uh, sector, subsector of the uh, of the field that I wasn't uh, intimately familiar with. Are you able so, to share specifically kind of what your idea was, or is it is it has it is it far enough in the past where you could share that, or is it something that you can't share? Um, I think it was a um, it was a, uh, a relative value fixed income trade in the European market uh, that uh, effectively took advantage of. The relative shapes of a the, the sovereign bond curves between um, uh, a semi core and another smaller semi core country. You said semi core. Yeah. So uh, in um, in Europe, there's this terminology to group various countries into core, semi core, and periphery. Got it. And so in periphery, Spain, Italy, uh, Portugal, Ireland. Uh, is typically grouped under periphery. Mm-hmm. Uh, core countries are grouped as, call it Germany, Finland, um, Netherlands, Belgium, uh, and then there's these uh, semi-core countries which are sort of uh, categorized as the in-between. Got it. So you, what, first off, where, how did you even come up with this idea to even look here, and where, what tools did you use to even know to look there? Is this something that you had seen in the past, heard of a similar trade in the past? Or kind of what prompted that? Do you remember? Yeah. So I was able to get the interview um, through a friend of mine who was already working there. And I knew what he was working on. And he was sort of working on uh, and focused on the European fixed income relative value uh, market. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would I would sort of meet up with him every you know once a year or so, and he would tell me about the trades he was doing and how he thought about it, and that sort of stuck with me. And um, and so 
And so this was a way for me to filter out, you know, the very vast opportunity set that is macro and think about, you know, what is the trade that will be appealing, appealing for them to listen to. Um, and so I sort of used, you know, what I learned from the, from those uh, meetings in order to uh, to drive my selection process. So I honestly think that's probably the hardest part about any of these interviews is just coming up with that initial idea. So it's great that you had a framework yeah. you could kind of go off, you know, just to even understand of, okay, I'm going to look at the, the fixed income, you know, curves and whatever to know yeah. in the semi-core, you just even know where to start, I think is probably the hardest part. Um, but that's exactly. great. You had a, you had a and that's mentor. probably just a good practice knowing what the wheelhouse is of, of the fund that you're interviewing at. Yeah. And so whatever idea you're coming up with, they're likely to be more receptive if it's sort of within the wheelhouse for sure and it's, it's more really likely to encourage a, a livelier debate where you can where you have the opportunity to talk about all the prep work that you've done and so as opposed to if you if you pitch an equity trade to a fixed income fund you know that could be a 30 <laughs> second conversation and you know all your work can go to waste right and it was that was that meant i'll call them a mentor was that mentor still was were they also working there or was it something where they had worked there in the past and you just knew that was something um, they were interested in? they were still there at the time uh, but you know we didn't ultimately work together uh since he was on the relative value side and i was more on the on the macro side got it so can you explain just for the people who aren't as aware the the macro side like what types of trades you guys would put on sure so um uh, a typical macro trade um, over the last call decade or so was to be uh, long Japanese equities after Shinzo Abe was elected and sort of this, taking advantage of paradigm shifts that take place either politically or economically. Um, certainly, uh, Donald Trump's elections and Brexit in 2016 were, were very major catalysts that the community tried to take advantage of, whether they're on the right side or the wrong side. Um, but ultimately, uh, global macro attempts to profit from large regime shifts in various macro markets by expressing the view um, in, in liquid products. So the typically, I would say the, the divide between um, a macro fund and a non-macro fund is probably around the types of instruments that they trade. So a macro fund would never, likely never touch single names call it Apple stock or GM, mm -hmm. but would more likely focus on uh, entire country equity index, like the Nikkei or the Eurostox or the S&P in the US or the FTSE in the UK, or some, some of them would focus on, on sectors. Uh, so if they like the financials or if they like uh, semiconductors, uh, generally where a lot of the focus is around predicting where the tailwinds are, Mm -hmm. And the focus is not on identifying who the winner is going to be in any sector. Yeah, it makes total sense. And so, yeah. So how how well read do you have to be in terms of the, like the politics versus like understanding interest rates and, and general macroeconomic policy at, within? I guess it, you probably just have to you probably just have to do the research when you decide, hey, we're going to dig in further on the specific idea. Then you have to really dig in. And I, is there certain like resources that are kind of um, I mean, Bloomberg, obviously, but like, is there certain resources that these these funds typically use that someone who's trying to come up with a trade idea for an interview could still have access to? Yeah, um, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have access to a Bloomberg terminal, which allowed me to look at those various yield curves and see where where things looked a little bit funny. Um, and I guess um, if 
if a person doesn't have direct access to it, I, I know there's definitely public libraries in all the major cities in the U.S. that do have Bloomberg terminals that will allow you to sort of, you know, dig in and sort of get real numbers around things that, that otherwise it's hard to get numbers about. And one of the big barriers is that, you know, sitting in your living room in your computer, uh, typically the, a person has access to stock quotes, maybe a P number here or there, but it's usually around listed um listed financial instruments that a retail uh, investor tends to look at. And so the macro world is, um, you know, the, the, the wide variety of instruments, a lot of them are, are OTC, and a lot of those data points are just unavailable to the average person if you don't have a professional data terminal like Bloomberg. And so um, I, think it's, I think it's important to be fully prepped to, to get access to one of those. Yeah, that's why I asked. I just didn't know if there was kind of a well-known yeah. resource, but that's great. Thank you for the the public library thing could help out a lot of people. So um, yeah. in terms of, I guess, maybe just going, but yeah, in terms of now, so you're, you're there, you're become head of macro, macro strategy, and you, is, was that something where you were promoted? Was that something that you know, was just given to you kind of coming straight in? Or, and then how did, how did you typically think about kind of your next step and kind of what are you looking for next? Um, so I, I was promoted over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so didn't, uh, wasn't there when I started. I, in fact, when I started, I was reporting to a portfolio manager who previously served as, as head of macro strategy. And so um, I had to learn a lot from him. And there, there was a, quite a bit of a learning curve to, to catch up to, uh, to catch up on uh, the way that uh, they ran their investment process and the types of things that they looked at. So. Um, it was only after, I would say, uh, almost three years, two and a half years, where I was able to be promoted into a more senior role. Got it. Was that just after because you just had enough good ideas and you're executing well enough, or was that more just like a seniority thing? Um, you have to earn it. You know, it was yeah. the type of place where you have to be the guy who knew when it was asked. And one of the one of the things that I really learned very early on is that. Um, at a place where you know, ideas and views can change very quickly, I think it's important to be able to know uh, when a question is asked. But so when something is asked of you, if you say, I don't know, and you get back to them, call it a couple hours later, that, that's worth much less than knowing it when it was asked. Interesting. And so, and so, the, so I made sure that I, was, I knew everything, even 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 positions that we didn't have or in markets that we didn't uh, focus on in case the odd question came about the upcoming Mexican election or whatever it was at the time, mm-hmm. then I'd have some nugget of information that that was valuable to the person asking the question. Great. Great. So that's really interesting. And in terms of the, the pay, are you comfortable sharing any of your pay numbers as you kind of progress through your career? I started with... Um, an entry-level salary of about sixty-five thousand uh, in my first year, and uh, my best year was in 2017, where I earned a little bit over four hundred um, all in. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the final year, obviously, it was a shortened year, um, uh, the year that I left, and I guess with my severance, it annualized a little bit lower than what I earned in 2017. That's great. Really impressive. Really, uh, I think 
incredible trajectory from where you started to where you ended up. So thank you for sharing that. Anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before kind of we call we call the uh, pod? Any piece, any yeah, words of wisdom and, and stuff in terms of people trying to break into this type of career? Sure. Um, you know, I'd say that, you know, there's, I think there's a lot to be said. So what I'll say is as the mentees think about which mentor they want to um, go with, um, I'll say that, you know, I was, I did not have the ideal uh, career trajectory. I had a non-traditional career trajectory. Um, and so I, I made a lot of mistakes and I also made a lot of wise decisions. And, and I think that I gained a very interesting perspective and on what not to do and what to do uh, throughout your, uh, throughout one's career. And sort of for those whose, uh, who, whose background is, less than ideal from the perspective of the top tier investment banks and are looking to break into the industry, I think that I might have some interesting insights for them to, uh, to listen to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Mentor 86. If you want to chat with him, uh, check out the AMA going on right now. And thanks to you, my listeners. If you have any feedback at all, please send it through Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. And remember you can book time with this specific guest or any one of our 270 mentors by going to services, find your mentor. Take care.